0: What we're going to do is to pause in our series in the book of Galatians and find our way in our Newer Testaments to a very small book, the book of Titus, where you and I are going to find that in the heart of this little book, there is a passage of Scripture that in a very succinct way describes the working of Jesus Christ, and a very powerful way prepares our hearts and our minds for receiving the bread and the cup together. And it's Titus. Chapter 2, verse 11, down through verse 14. Titus is a pastor on an island in the Mediterranean known as Crete, 40, 50 miles south of Greece. Paul writes this somewhere in that A.D. 62 through 67 time period. He's ministered there. Titus most likely came from the city of Antioch. And now he, with sleeves rolled up, is seeking to serve his Lord faithfully And Paul wants to be able to communicate succinctly the richness of Christ's work on that cross. So here we find it now in this second chapter, beginning in verse 11, two pivotal appearances that you're going to want to mark in these verses that I think in some ways bookend our own personal position in this world. Look for them, underline them, and see how all this fits together because of them where I pick it up in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. So now, what we're going to do is to try to get our arms around these verses and to ask how it relates to our lives today. Was it mean to live this out in this present age as He described it? So we're going to allow for these two significant appearances to structure our thoughts as we look to our Lord now in prayer. Father, we praise you. We thank you for who you are and what you're doing. I pray in advance for the service tonight. Thank you, Father, for the way in which the medical team last week were able to very Clearly, instructively, I guide a large number of people through thinking about matters that perhaps we try to avoid, and will do so again tonight. And I pray, Lord, in advance that you will guide and direct them as they position themselves around the table on this platform this evening. May your spirit lead this morning, Father, again, it's that your spirit lead. The one who inspired these words penned by Paul is the one who illuminates the hearts of those who read these writings of Paul. So we want to be able to interpret accurately, and we want to be willing and able to apply these verses thoroughly. Now, Father, in these moments, you know our needs. You know what keeps us awake at night? There perhaps is that one particular family member or friend, loved one. It seems to be on the outskirts of your will. Even now, be pouring truth into the heart of that person, Father. Leading them to you, back to you. There are going to be those, Father, we come in contact with today who... Outwardly seem engaged with you, but inwardly there is a hardened heart. So we're praying now that you're going to warm that heart, soften that heart, engage that heart, so the inward and the outward are united in you. Father, this opportunity we have for the bread and the cup, fresh visual reminders of the central truths of the Christian faith, we don't take lightly. Want to away with significance and seriousness, the work of Jesus Christ, past, present, future. So Father, we thank you for these moments. Warm these hearts of ours. Engage these minds of ours. Shape these wills of ours. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Love the story. It was a wealthy farmer, his family, in Great Britain. Took their children to the countryside. Children were swimming in a particular pool when one of the boys began to drown. Now, the son of the gardener jumped in and rescued this helpless one. The grateful parents then asked this gardener what they could do for for the young, youthful hero. And the gardener said that his son wanted to become a physician. He wants to go to college and become a doctor. Then we'll be glad and happy to pay his way through, they told him. Now as Paul Harvey would put it, the rest of the story. When Winston Churchill was stricken with pneumonia after the Tehran Conference, the King of England then instructed that the best doctor in all of Great Britain come to save the Prime Minister. The doctor's name? Dr. Fleming, the developer of penicillin. Looking back over that experience, Churchill wrote these words Rarely in the history of humankind has one man appeared, not once, but twice to rescue another for that gardener's son became dr fleming when i came across that account describing the events in churchill's life i was struck by a particular word that he used to enlighten us in that experience and where's the word appeared Rarely in the history of humankind has one man appeared, not once, but twice, to rescue another. And I thought about the two appearances of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because what you and I are going to find is that there are two significant appearances that this one will use for the sake of his rescue mission of humankind. The first appearance is described in verses 11 and 12. The second appearance is described in verses 13 and 14. These two appearances, known as the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, bookend these verses and really bookend our lives and force us now as we think about where I am positioned, between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, and how spiritually I am positioned to be better prepared to receive the elements in light of the fact Jesus died for my sins and someday will return for his glory. So looking now very carefully at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, there are going to be two significant appearances we want to draw out of these verses, The first is found in verse 11 and 12. We'll simply describe it as the appearance of grace. The appearance of grace. For as Paul put it, writing to Titus, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Let's look very carefully at what's taking place here. There are two particular thoughts that emerge. One, the grace of God saves us. It's found in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Notice then that in this phrasing, the grace of God, what Paul is now telling us is that God and grace as it relates to God is the source, the source of the salvation. Again, not our works. It is all of God's grace. But develop this now a little bit further. As Paul writes to people on this island of Crete, And to Titus, who is ministering on this island in the Mediterranean, rather prosperous island, he would be dealing with various forms of unbelief. Now, the same is true today. The religious unbeliever bases his idea of salvation on what I have done for God which, of course, is good works. But the secular unbeliever bases his thinking on who I am before God. Good nature. I am a good person, is his line of thought. One may have a consciousness of sin, so attempting to overcome that consciousness of sin... They say, I must add my works to Christ's work. But the other lacks a consciousness of sin, so rather than talking about good works, that individual, he or she, talks about being a good person. One bases on the idea of what I can do for God, good works. The other bases on the idea of who I am before God, good person. The problem is, for the religious unbeliever, by adding good works, so to speak, to Christ's work, he or she, in essence, is saying that what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient. On the other hand, the secular unbeliever, who assumes I am a good person, in essence is saying what Christ did on the cross was Unnecessary. One has an understanding of sin, but an overestimation of their works. The other is not so interested in their works because they have so underestimated sin and overestimated their nature. Good person. So now we've got these individuals in America today. One is thinking... Based on good works, the religious unbeliever fails to understand here the significance of Christ's sufficient work on the cross. Believes, in essence, that it was inadequate. The secular unbeliever, good person, who he or she is before God, assumes the good nature, therefore what Jesus Christ did on the cross, unnecessary, I am sufficient simply to stand before God. I thought about that when I came across this. It was a description of a time in which Dr. Ironside, former pastor of the Moody Church, was ministering down in California. While presenting the gospel on the street of a particular city, we were often interrupted about as follows. Look here, a man would say. There are hundreds of religions in this country. And the followers of each of them think that theirs is the right one. How can a man like me find out what really is the truth? Great question. At least he's thinking about truth. Dr. Ironside replied something like this. Hundreds of religions, you say? That's strange. It's strange. I've only heard of two. The man looks at him quizzically, surely you know there's more than two. No, sir, I respond. I admit many shades of differences in the opinions of those compromising or rather comprising the two great schools, but after all there are only two. The one covers all who expect salvation by doing the other All who have been saved by something already done. He presses the point home. So you see, the whole question is very simple. Can you save yourself or must you be saved by another? If you can be your own savior, you do not need my message. If you cannot, you may well listen further. Which takes us then to something that we've said on occasion on these Sunday mornings in various expositions of books of the Bible. That when you look at the various religions of this world, there are really only two letters that separate those religions from Christianity. Those religions could be boiled down to the word, the letters D O, for Christianity. It is D-O-N-E. And it's the N-E that separates Christianity from all other religions, you see. Everything else is about doing, but when it comes to Christianity, it's all about done. Done by Jesus. It is finished were his words on that cross. So now when you and I are trafficking among religious or secular unbelievers, ask yourself, is this a person that is basing their thinking on the idea of do? Or are they open to the teachings of the scriptures, which bases the essence of salvation upon the word done? It's the N-E that separates the true and the false. Now, you go back to this and you realize, as we spoke of last week, one of the contradictions in the mindset of the religious unbeliever is that they operate on the graces of what I would call merited grace. But that's a contradiction. You can't have it both ways. Yet now, what we need to do is to penetrate into the depths of the true meaning of salvation, the essence of grace. It is unmerited favor. And now, we move forward. The grace of God saves us. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. There is your word again to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And that brings you and brings me then to this next significant thought about the appearance of grace. Not only does the grace of God save us according to verse 11, but the grace of God instructs us according to verse 12. Now look very carefully at the wording in verse 12. It says it teaches us. The word teaches here tells us that grace is our teacher, but it describes not a judge in a court who is lecturing someone found guilty and about to be sentenced. Rather, it is the word picture of a father lovingly speaking to a son or daughter who is teaching them about the whole matter of grace. Not a judge, but a father is the word picture now in that one word. Furthermore, this one word describes someone who is able to learn from the trials of life. It carries with it the idea of someone who is internally disciplined because he or she has taken the external discipline of this world and pressed internal truth because of those disciplines into the heart. The wise parent, the wise grandparent, the wise person in the workplace is able to say, you seem to be going through a tough time. You face some hurdles in life. But there is truth to be learned through trial. Grace disciplines us. It's not soft grace we're talking about here. Grace disciplines us to turn the trials into truths, to take the external and make it internal, so that when we are facing bigger challenges yet in life, we've got an instructor who internally guides us forward in the will of God when we don't know which way to go. But do you see how this ties together? The grace of God saves us. And the same grace that saved you, therefore, now serves as your teacher, your your instructor, your professor, equipping you now to be able to handle the trials of life and embrace the truths that stand in the midst of those trials. Here is how wise your teacher is. He balances the negative and the positive. He starts with the negative. Notice what he says here. teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. The moment a person thinks that Christianity is all about saying no, then all of a sudden he flips it around and says, and here's the yes. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That means then that if you and I are saved by this grace and we are being taught by this grace, we need to be able to communicate the ideas surrounding this grace that we are effectively living in such a way that we can balance the negative and a positive in a manner that pleases God. If we are all negative and no positive, or all positive and no negative, we've missed the point of instructive grace and become imbalanced people in an imbalanced church. This is the wisdom of the Scriptures. And when we can embrace these terminals, so the negative and the positive, the terminals of the two appearances of Christ, then we've got something to say to a highly imbalanced society and highly imbalanced people who are continuously tilting one way or another rather than walking forward, erect, before their sovereign God. Do you see the richness here, that's unfolding before your very eyes? Is God's teaching you, teaching me, about His will? You know, there's this statue in Switzerland. It's been constructed and built for a, a tremendous teacher in their his, history. His name is Pestalozzi, and through the generations, he symbolizes the ultimate teacher in the eyes of 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 people teaching in schools even today. And typically, grade schoolers in particular will go and visit that monument with with their principals and the likes. You know, the initial monument was erected in such a way that the teacher was shown looking down upon this kneeling form of a child who is looking directly upward at the face of the teacher. But then the sculptor was told, once he had unveiled this monument, that he had missed the true heartbeat of of Pestalozzi. It didn't represent the primary desire he had, and so they challenged him to redo this monument. There was a second unveiling, and this time he seemed to have grasped the idea of this teacher, because this time, the student is not looking up at the face of the teacher, but rather looking beyond this teacher toward the heavens. Now, what God is teaching you and me is this. Grace is forcing us to look in the right direction. Forces us to look upward towards the one who is sovereignly in control of our lives and sent his son to die, you see, for our sins. So now, what have you done? You've said this first appearance of grace. The grace of God saves, saves you, saves me. We are saved by God's grace, not by our efforts. Verse 11. The grace of God, furthermore, instructs us, and instructs us in such a way we balance this. We've got terminals of negative and positive. And so we lead these balanced lives and equip the next generation to do likewise. Now, all of that comes out of just two verses, the appearance of grace. But now, here's your second appearance, the appearance of glory. Look for it. Beginning now in verse 13, you and I are told, while we wait, While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious, here it is, appearance of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that word appearance, second time it's occurred in these verses, comes from a Greek word, we get the word epiphany. Throughout the world, on January 6th, particularly in Eastern Europe and in various places, places where Roman Catholicism embraces this. They celebrate what is known as the Day of Epiphany, when the Magi approached Jesus. And as a result, it was as if the Gentile word became aware of the fact that Jesus Christ was there for them as well. Now, what God is saying here is that this is your epiphany. The first coming connects to the second coming. And now you and I are asking ourselves, then what do I look for? Here's what we've got to do. We've got to look to the future by understanding the past. We've got to go to the past to get to the future. In other words, when you and I are considering the second coming, the epiphany of Jesus Christ, we've got to ask ourselves, okay, then, what should I be looking for And three significant phrases leap out at you, beginning in verse 14. The first phrase is this, Who gave himself for us. Do you see it there? Mark it. Who gave himself. It does not say that Pilate or Herod took his life. Again, just as we noted in Galatians 1 verses 1 through 5, Jesus gave his life. He was not under the sovereign decisions of Herod and Pilate. Rather, he was fulfilling the sovereign decision in the Godhead where he himself gave his life. It doesn't say they took his life. It was Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus. I was fascinated because it's hot off the press. And I knew, of course, what I've been covering in Galatians and studying in Titus. <coughs> Mr. O'Reilly, of course, is trained in histories, background as a history teacher. He's written books, co-authored books, Killing Lincoln, and Killing Kennedy, the trilogy now killing Jesus. And so I was I was curious how he was going to how he was going to approach this subject, you see. So I'm rifling through the pages in a hurry here. But what struck me was that he was accurately recording the events, the Sanhedrin, of Pilate, Herod, the Jewish opposition. But we go into the theological understanding behind those events of eternity past and the decision made within the Godhead that God the Father would send the Son into this world and that the second member of the Trinity gave himself. It is not a taking of his life. This is truly a giving of his life, sovereignly designed within the Godhead not within the Sanhedrin or between Pilate and Herod. That has significance for you and for me, then, because it reminds us of the fact that Jesus Christ is in control, even when life seems to be so out of control. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, Jesus Christ said. At his crisis moment on that cross, he was still in control who gave himself for us. First phrase. To understand the future, you got to go to the past. It's back to the future here. Notice the second phrase. To redeem us from all wickedness. Mock now that word, redeem. Because it carries with it the idea of one who pays a price to free a hostage. I entered into this world as a hostage to sin. There is a past, present, and future aspect to the demolition of the sin principle. Past, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, that cross. Present, Jesus breaks the power of that sin. He lives within me. Future, Jesus delivers us from the presence of sin with his second appearance. Penalty of sin. Power of sin. Presence of sin. Past, present, future, bookended by appearances that help us to make sense in this present age in which we live. So therefore, this rescue mission, where he delivers the hostage, past, pays the penalty for sin, present, and still in the sinful state, breaks the power of sin, equipping us to resist temptation. Future, delivers us from the presence of sin. You tie all this together, and that then is the richness of what stands behind that one word. Redeem. Redeem. And once we've grasped that, here's our third significant thought. Still found in verse 14. To purify for himself of people that are his very own. Notice that it's for himself. It's not for us. And one of the big challenges ministering in this culture is that people come to church asking, what can I get for myself? But what fascinates us is that Jesus Christ has done a 180 on us here, and he says, it's really, Highlander, not about you. It's just not about you, Gary. For you see, the objective here is to purify for himself. He is purifying the believer for himself. A people that are his very own. And if you've ever struggled about belonging, if you've ever struggled with the whole idea of where do I fit, How do I feel and get connected? Understand what Jesus is doing here. He uses a purification process for himself to remind you and me, if we are saved by grace, we are his very own. I don't belong to myself. I belong to him. That's what helps us to better understand this statement. Rarely in the history of humanity has one man appeared, not once, but twice, to rescue another to which we humbly respond to the great Churchill, Jesus Christ. God, 100% man, two natures in one person produces two appearances so that the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin, the past, present, and future are thoroughly, completely, totally dealt with due to the sovereign working of combining God's grace and God's glory through God's Son, Jesus, for which we praise you, Father. We thank you. We give you this glory as a result of this grace. It's why we're here, to worship you. So we find, Father, that this grace saves us. When we open up the scriptures, we find that this grace instructs us. And it instructs us such a way that what we do then is that in the trials we're facing this week, We allow the trials to be transformed into truths. And we internalize. We process. And we find that Jesus was there all along, ministering to us at our point of need. And we praise you, Father, that that ultimate need was addressed at the cross where you died for our sins.